Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for another opportunity to study Your Word again in this day and in this week. Thank You for the freedom we have to do so in this land, and thank You for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we just want to make kind of loosey-goosey. If you have any questions, comments, please feel free to interrupt at any time. No, the idea <clears throat> is to understand just a little bit about how the New Testament came about, the formation, organization of the New Testament, and why it is the way we have it now as Protestants, as the orthodoxy of 27 books in the New Testament. And you might ask, it's been 2,000 years, why should we care what happened 2,000 years ago? And the reason is this. We have a lot, a lot of authors, some better than others, writing books and literature that in effect wants to destroy the authority of the New Testament books. So, doing their writing with the popular media and along with the, what we could say would be liberal theological types, are trying to undermine the authority of what we consider the New Testament, undermine the authority of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And so if they can cast doubt on our understanding of the New Testament and how it came about, if they can cast doubt on the authority of the 27 books of the New Testament, they can also put our faith in doubt and say, look, you Christians don't have a clue what you're doing. You're reading the wrong book. You're understanding it wrong. It's not even the right books. It's not even the right Christianity. So what we have... The Gnostic Bible, Gnosticism, was a sect, you could say, a, a heretical offshoot of Christianity, probably starting in the second century A.D. But the Gnostics said, you know what, in addition to all this other Christian stuff you have, in addition to the Bible, we have these special books, special knowledge that was given just to us. And the only way you can really understand Jesus and get to heaven is through the special knowledge that we Gnostics have. And so Elaine Pagels wrote a book about the Gnostic Bible, and there is a lot of literature the Gnostics put out that she has included here and saying, you know what, Maybe Gnostic Christianity was really the real Christianity, and, and maybe the Orthodox got it wrong. I mean, Dan Brown probably all heard of the Da Vinci Code. The idea of a lot of novels, the idea of authors writing, quote, historical novels about Jesus and Christianity, is that not only do we have to denigrate the authority of the New Testament books, the canon, the scriptures, we also have to pull down Jesus. We have to take him down from his pedestal as deity, as the Son of God, as God himself, and we have to look into and see if we can find any weird writings, Gnostic writings, people just writing off the cuff back then, and see, you know, is it possible that Jesus was married? Let's see what we can find in the gutters of the literature of the time and see if we can find out, was Jesus married? Did he have a family? What happened to his family? Was he married to Mary Magdalene? You know, all the good gossip that was going around. But the pop culture in the secular world, when a book like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code comes out, they read it, they see the movie, and they say, aha, my church has been telling me that Jesus Christ is, is actually God, and he was sent here, and he died and arose. And this book is telling me, they've been doing research, that he was actually married, he had a family, and he really didn't die, and he really didn't resurrect, and his bones are laying around in Israel somewhere. So, the mentality of most of us in this country is that we don't dig deep, we don't research, we don't look for anything, and the person on the street says, wow, that sounds cool. Jesus, married, family, bones still here. Yeah, that sounds a lot more interesting than what my church teaches me. So the idea, not only bring the scriptures down, the New Testament down, is to bring Jesus down, to destroy Christianity starting at the base. Now, the third guy here, Bart, Bart Ehrman, Dr. Bart Ehrman, 
is a professor of New Testament at North Carolina Chapel Hill. He is an actual rather eminent professor as these things go in the, in the study of the New Testament. But he went from a teenager as a, as he puts it, a fundamentalist Christian. Once he started looking into all this and, and the all that was available. He, he lost his belief in the inerrancy and the authority of the New Testament, and basically he now describes himself as an agnostic atheist, whatever that is. But he has tremendous influence. Some of these books are bestsellers. He has tremendous influence on the secular culture. So look at, look at the titles he's got here. Lost Christianity, the battles for scripture and faiths we never knew. The idea that there were many varieties of Christianity and what we now call Orthodox, we as Protestants, was just one of the many, many different types of Christianity that happened to win out. Lost scriptures, idea that, hey, New Testament doesn't have all it should have in it. There's all kinds of books and scriptures that should have been in there. Forge, writing in the name of God. Okay, based on the idea that most of the works of the New Testament is synonymous, they really don't have an author that is, we understand as the author, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, so on and so forth, and thinking, well, these were all written by other people and then the name was attached to it. And then the last here, how the earliest Christians remembered, changed, and invented their stories of the Savior. So this is out there in the pop culture, you and I out there probably know a lot of people that if you ask them, say, yeah, we've read some of these, and most people say, yeah, I know all about the Da Vinci Code, Jesus was married, wasn't he? had a family, didn't he? Really didn't die because they found his bones, right? So why do we care about the formation of the New Testament? Because we need to be prepared to answer what these people bring up. Remember, these are not all wackos out on the far left. Like I said, Bart is a very well-known, very eminent New Testament scholar, even though he is now an agnostic atheist or an atheist agnostic, or one or the other. So the idea we have to understand what is so special about the 27 books of the New Testament, the books of the Old Testament? What is so special? What power do they have that people want to destroy? Destroy the structure of the New Testament and also Jesus and so your and I's faith. So understand, scriptures. Paul writes, from a child to Timothy, you learn the holy scriptures... One, it's able to make you wise into salvation, what the Holy Scriptures will bring you to salvation. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's not by the hand of men or women. And profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we all know those two verses. So, we talk about Scripture. Old Testament Scripture, New Testament Scripture, the Scriptures, generically, generic definition, sacred writings of any people. Okay, the Buddhists have probably certain sacred writings. We learned this morning the Hindus have sacred writings, the Muslims have sacred writings, the Mormons have sacred writings. Generic sacred writings of any people. For us, for Orthodox Christianity, the books of the Old and New Testaments which are the authoritative sacred word of God. That is a basic definition for scriptures for us as Orthodox Christians. Now another word that comes in this, and, and probably you can kind of use one for the other, a very close word here is canon. One N, that's not a mistake. Canon is one N, not two. And as we refer to the New Testament, it's a collection of books or a list accepted as the authoritative rule of Christian faith and practice. So we have, in effect, the canon of our New Testament, 27 books. Or you could say the scriptures of the New Testament are in 27 books. Kind of use either word. Understand, it's originally derived from a Hebrew word. So back in the olden, olden, olden days, they used reeds as measuring sticks. Instead of going and getting your wooden yardstick out or your laser, you get a reed, 
And some of them were used as measuring sticks. You cut it out from the old banks of the Nile, cut it up and say, aha, I have a re the standard, the standard one meter stick made out of platinum, palladium maybe, but it is the ideal, the standard. This is one meter. And so we have a canon or a standard of books as Christians, as Orthodox Christians. Now, to understand a little about how the New Testament came about and why, we have to know a little bit about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is obviously the only scripture new Christians had until the New Testament started being disseminated. So to newbie Christians, the scriptures were the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, Three sections, the law, obviously, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the writings. And tradition among the Jews is that, you know, kind of after the, the exiles came back, a few hundred years after that, that prophecy ceased, 400 B.C., with the deaths of the last prophets. And so research suggests that the Hebrew canon, or the Hebrew collection of their sacred books, the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew scriptures, that canon, that list, if you want to call it that, was closed more or less about the first or second century B.C. And we know Jesus says, kind of quotes and, and goes over that, you know, from the deaths of Abel to Zechariah, kind of including that whole Hebrew Bible. So that was the Hebrew Bible, the Jews had it, the early Christians used it, that's all they had. Interestingly, along with the books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there was these apocrypha, hidden, concealed books, that there was a lot of debate among Jews, you know, are these scriptural, semi-scriptural, or are they just edifying? What should we do with these? Should we include them? Should we not include them? And we've, you've probably never heard of many of these. Most, maybe of us, has heard of First and Second Maccabees, which is a history of the early beginnings of the Maccabean Revolution around yeah, 160, 150 B.C. Okay, the Maccabees, and the feast that celebrates that is Hanukkah the liberation for just a while of Judah. But eventually, the teachers, the leaders of the, of the Jewish nation said, no, no, these books might be interesting reading, they might be edifying, but we are not going to include them in the Bible. They are not scripture. So what ends up, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, as we call it, contains the same books as our Old Testament, but the order is a little different. Instead of ending with, with uh, Malachi, they end with Chronicles, but it, it's all kind of both. So the early church, as part of their scriptures, adapted, adopted the Hebrew Bible, the canon of the Jews. No apocrypha was in it. However, where things again got a little sticky here was the Apocrypha, those 15 books, you know, there was that debate. How good are they? How bad are they? What should we do with them? They were included in the Roman Catholic Latin Vulgate Bible that was written by Jerome. And if you can see here, for about a thousand years, that was the standard translation of the Bible in the Western Church. Because the Western Church was more or less the same in these years, as the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation had not yet occurred. So, if you were lucky enough to have a copy of the Vulgate, or you went to Mass and it was read, you would be understanding that these Apocrypha, these 15 books, were in that. And you said, oh, so now they've changed and now they've put them back in the Old Testament. And so, if you and I were in that time, we would think, well, if the Vulgate has it, and that's the book my church uses, those apocrypha, those 15 books, must be scripture. And so the debate went back and forth. Some Bibles had them, some didn't. Interestingly, very interesting, several of the early English Bibles, including the 1611 King James Bible, King James Version, included the apocrypha. And the Puritans 
Remember, there were separatists who were our pilgrims, Puritans, and then the Anglican Church, the Church of England itself, strongly approved the Apocrypha, which led to significant controversy, and eventually they were taken back out. However, up to this day, they are still part of the Roman Catholic Bible. Note here, it canonized the Roman Catholic Church, one of its conventions, said, you know what? We are just going to canonize these books. We're going to make them part of the scriptures. So the Roman Catholics, like New Jerusalem Bible, you can look at some of their, their translations. They have most of the Apocrypha, and they are treated as scripture. They're like the second canon, like the book of Deuteronomy. These are called deuterocanonical books, a second canon. So for most Roman Catholics, these 15 books are still in their Bible. So we need to go next to the understanding about somewhat of the Old Testament. We have to understand now how the, the New Testament came into being. So to begin with, early Christians, they had the Jewish Bible. They had our Old Testament. And, and understanding what that Old Testament was, scriptures, they began to understand, look, we can also have, as we have an Old Testament, an Old Covenant, we now have a New Covenant through Jesus Christ. And so books began to be written and to be published. And the questions that our, our liberal authors and scholars and theologians say, you know, what about all this? Who decided this actually? Was it the work of men and women? Was it a work of voting? How did we get about the 27 books? And why are they probably not right, according to the view of liberals? Okay, several basics we need to understand. Every book, Matthew writes his book, Luke writes his book, Mark writes his book, John writes, Paul writes, each book was scripture and canonical the very moment the ink was placed on the page. So through the inspiration of God, if we accept the inspiration of God, led the authors to write, as soon as they put ink to the paper, that book was scripture. No, we may not have recognized it. The church may not have recognized it. But it was at that moment when ink was placed to paper, that book was scripture. It wasn't decided later. It was scripture. It was canonical at that time. Whether anybody realized it or not, it was. The role of the church is, was to recognize recognize that which was already scripture. Matthew sends out his gospel. It is already scripture. In God's eyes, it's scripture and canonical. The church had to recognize. The church did not determine which books were scripture. They were already scripture. The church's job was to recognize, to recognize that which was already scripture. So, our authors, our liberal friends, would say, nah, 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 nah. You guys had conventions, you guys had sessions, you guys had councils, and then you voted on these books. And the only reason we got the four Gospels, the others, is because at some point there was a convention and the majority said, yep, I think that one is Scripture. No, I don't think that other one is Scripture. But no, there was no determination through any kind of preference or voting or council or the leaders getting together and saying, you know what, Bishop so-and-so and Bishop so-and-so have gotten together, the high council, and they have decided that these books are going to be the New Testament. It didn't work like that. So, understanding the church's job is to recognize, not to make a canon, not to authorize a canon, not to say what a scripture is a scripture. The church's job, its responsibility, was to recognize the canon. So, a few principles we might consider in doing that. One, 
Was the book written by an apostle or someone in close association with an apostle? Okay, the four Gospels. Matthew was an apostle. John was an apostle. Luke was a close partner of Paul. And Mark was, as, they, as some of the church fathers have written, was a close confidant of Peter. Did it conform to the rule of faith? Were any contradictions to the Old Testament? Now you look at Matthew, Mary, and John and say, okay, wait a minute. This, uh, this contradicts what it says in the Old. Does God contradict himself? No. If a work is in contradiction to already established scripture, we have a problem. If it says to do something else other than what the rule of faith is, there's a problem. Was it universally accepted among the churches? That one might be a little nebulous. There was always a little give and take among the churches as to all the books. The most important, the most important, remember, when the ink hit the paper or the papyrus, not the paper, the papyrus or the vellum or the parchment, it was already scripture. So, Look at a work, let the Holy Spirit guide you. Does it have a self-authenticating divine nature? Can we look at that and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit see that God is actually, yes, speaking to his people through this book? And somebody said, by its very nature, Scripture, by its very nature, being of divine inspiration imposed itself upon the church. Just the very power of understanding that God inspired these authors, just that power itself imposed the book, if you can use that word, upon the church. It was the elephant in the room. You couldn't ignore the elephant. You could say, I don't like this scripture. I don't like this gospel. I don't like what it's saying. But it is the elephant in the room. And by its very nature, it imposed itself in a good way upon the church. Well, let's talk about the New Testament books. Most of them, most of them were written between approximately A.D. 50, A.D. 100. Jesus died probably A.D. 33. So, so between the time that Jesus died, the time these were written, there was obviously oral tradition. Oral tradition was very critically important in a society, in a culture where many, if not most people, couldn't read or write. Oral tradition was considered scripture, in a way, an oral scripture. It was that important, and, and we today say something, words? Nah, I gotta have text, I gotta have this, I gotta have print, no. It was oral tradition. And so, between the time Jesus died and the Gospels, the other books were written, probably 20, 30 years, by the end of the first century, probably all of the books had been written. So, we have the four Gospels. And people say, our liberal friends say, why four? Why not two? Why not five? Why not six? And the fact is that there were other Gospels circulating at this time. There weren't just the four Gospels. There were eight or other nine Nine other Gospels actually circulating. Gospels in the, in the effect that somebody wrote a story about Jesus' life. And the latest, probably a Gnostic Gospel, was the Gospel of Judas. Made a big splash a few years ago. And so, our liberal friends say, look, we've got eight or nine other Gospels. In addition to these four Gospels, why, why did the church just pick four Gospels? And that was answered by, by many of the church fathers said, well, obviously, these were the ones that were inspired. These were the ones that were written under the inspiration of God. The others were not. Whether we had 10, 20, 30, or 40 doesn't matter because just these four have been recognized as written under the inspiration of God. But our friends, they... they the idea here is that they want to, to paint a picture of an early Christianity that had 10, 20 different types of Christianity, 20, 30 different veins of Christianity, and that our faith, 
just happened to win the battle between the 20 or 30 other Christianities. And if they can do that and slowly force that view on people, people say, well, there was this whole idea of Christianity was just a fight between various sects, and one sect happened to win. They really had nothing to do with God. But from the beginning, from the first century, the recognition among the church fathers was that there were four gospels, four authoritative scriptural gospels, and all the others that were circulating around the time were rejected. It wasn't even a battle. The majority of the New Testament books were recognized as canonical probably by the mid-century. So it took a little time. It took a little time. You have to remember you're, you're writing each book, each testament. You're writing it out. You've got to write it by hand. You've got to probably rent a scribe or a secretary. Unless you were good at it, you had to write this out. And then this letter, this gospel, had to go from one church to another. There was no U.S. post office. There was no FedEx. There was no postal system. If you wanted to send your letter or your gospel, or Paul's letters, you had to send it by somebody you trusted, they took it to a church, and slowly it spread. So it took some time. The gospel was written, the gospel had to be copied. The books had to be copied, each copy by hand. Then they had to circulate throughout. And that took time. So we have, instead of, a, of, of 10, 20, 30, 40 Christianities that are all fighting and struggling and, and taking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to come together with some books, we need to understand, as the Church Fathers record, that by the middle probably of the second century, most of the New Testament books had already been recognized as Scripture. The well, Scripture, the earliest, the earliest idea here of the New Testament being Scripture, remember, the New Testament considers the Old Testament Scripture, so we're looking at the New Testament. The earliest that the New Testament is recognized in Scripture is already recorded in the New Testament itself. Scripture confirming Scripture. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. The Scripture says... Quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, that is scripture, that verse, that's a given. And Paul adds, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And that comes from Luke. So already now, before we even have, before we even have anything going on, the scripture itself confirms that the New Testament is scripture. It quotes the Old Testament, says it's scripture. It quotes the New Testament and says it is also scripture. There was no debate for hundreds of years, is this or is this not scripture? It's right here. It is scripture. Remember, when the ink hits the page, it is already scripture. It is not to be determined by men or women. It's not to be determined by voting. It's not determined by preference. And then Peter as also in all his, Paul's epistles, speaking in them of those things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and untable, people twist their own instruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. What is Peter saying? Number one, the rest of the scriptures. What are the rest of the scriptures? The Old Testament, the Gospels, whatever he had. He is equating in this, he is equating Paul's epistles as scripture already. Before they're all dead. It's already been equated. Peter himself says, consider Paul's epistles as scripture, as you do the Old Testament. So we have a, a bunch of the church fathers here going up to, this is probably close to the Nicaea Conference, but anyway, if, if you go through the writings of these church fathers, understanding they usually write in their books, messages, letters, whatever, the, the books that they understand have been recognized already as scripture. And so as you go through that, each one of them at, at the point here where we have dates is like, they're already recognizing 20, 22, 24 books of 
of the New Testament are ready as scripture. Remember, none of these guys, even though they're the big shots, they're running the church. None of them is making a decision as to which books belong in the New Testament. They are just writing about books that have been already recognized by the church. They are not making a decision. That's critical to understand if, if people come and say, look, Dan Brown in his book says that the New Testament was made up by people deciding, by the bishops deciding, by Origen, Justin, Martyr, Polycarp, Ignatius, Clement, by all those guys deciding what belongs in, what they like goes in, what they didn't like goes out. It is not true. It is not true. It all depended on recognition of the church and had already started with Clement of Rome, recognizing those books as they came out as already scripture. So, we get to Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, the uh, big city there in Egypt, was the first to include all 27 books of the New Testament. Okay, he did not vote on them. He did not pick them. He did not choose them. He just was talking to his congregation and said, you know what, these are the books of the New Testament that we as a church recognize. And so in one of his sermons here, Easter, was really the first time that we have on record that all, all 27 of the books were enumerated as being recognized. Again, not picked, not selected, not voted on, recognized by the church as scripture. Already being scripture when ink was put to the paper. So, and this is probably kind of a, a, a neutral opinion of a scholar that didn't lean too much either left or right. When consideration is given to the diversity and cultural backgrounds and in orientation to the essentials of the Christian faith within the churches, their common agreement about which books belong to the New Testament serves to suggest that this final decision did not originate solely on the human level. And so that is a very, 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 very nuanced statement. But if we understand it, it did not really originate at all from the human level. But this is mainstream scholars understanding that yes, there was something more than men and women trying to make decisions on what was scripture and what was the New Testament. So we want to talk a little bit about how the scripture was spread. We understand that all, or almost all, of the New Testament was originally written in Greek. There is some debate about whether Matthew wrote his gospel first in Hebrew and then in Greek, or if there was a translation from Hebrew to Greek. But essentially, essentially, everything was written in Greek. Understand that most people were illiterate. Most information, again, was transferred orally. Orally, that was the recognized, the recognized main way to transfer information. And because of the importance of that, you were careful to transfer things very carefully orally. It was an oral culture. We are not an oral culture. We have no clue how exact an oral culture transmitted their information. So most information was transmitted orally. We know Jesus. Jesus said to the people, have you not heard? To the people who were mostly illiterate, Jesus said, have you not heard? Remember, oral culture. In the ears, words, in the ears. Not on paper, not on papyrus. But to the scribes and Pharisees, he said, have you not read? Inferring inferring, implying that there was, at the higher levels, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, there was a certain amount of literacy and writing skill. He says, have you not read? And as is expected, if, if you want to be an interpreter of the law, if you're a scribe and a Pharisee and a priest, you need to have some knowledge of what's going on in all those scrolls you have tucked away there in the temple. And so the understanding is, the importance is, that oral tradition 
bridge the time gap between the death of Jesus and the writing of the Gospels. And you say, wait a minute, again, liberal scholars would say, you can't trust oral tradition. What they said in A.D. 33 when Jesus died, 30 years later, is totally different, like the telephone game. How can you guys trust what was written in a gospel 50 years, 60 years after Jesus died, if it's based on oral tradition? And again, we have to move our minds, go back 2,000 years, understand oral tradition was how the culture ran. It was critical. And oral tradition was very, very carefully transmitted, especially when you have something concerning a theological issue. Early writing materials. So, so Matthew gets inspired to write a gospel. What does he have to do? Matthew has to find a writing material. So he has to go to a shop somewhere that sells papyrus. Cheapest writing material at the time was papyrus. And papyrus, if you remember our old world history, is a reed that grows mostly along the banks of the Nile River. You took those reeds, you split them open, and you had strips of material, and you laid one strip this way, and you, you did a bunch of vertical strips, a bunch of horizontal strips, you put them in the sun, and they dried and they came together. So, on the one side, where you could write nicely, horizontally, they called the recto. The back side, where the stripes were vertical, and it was more difficult to write on, was the verso. But you had to get papyrus. You had to buy a bunch of it. You had to get a writing material. And if you really didn't know how to write and do grammar, you had to hire a scribe. And all of that costs a lot of money. And so, the earliest... The earliest witnesses to the original text of the New Testament are the papyri. A few things to understand here. We do not, we do not, for any of the books of the old, the old, but especially for our purposes, the New Testament, we do not have any of the originals. We do not have any of the autographs, the original copy. We have none of those. But we do have these collections of papyri that date to sometimes the earliest ones, maybe to 75, 80 years after, after they were first written. So we do not have the originals, but we have many, many, many remnants and manuscripts, maybe over 5,000 of the first three, four, 500 years of Christianity, remnants of gospels, on paper, not on paper, papyrus, on vellum, on parchment. But these collections, what we're going to talk about now, these collections of New Testament papyri, written on papyrus, are the earliest witnesses we have to the New Testament. There are several different collections, so we want to go over this a little bit. The Chester Beatty collection... The picture here is a plate of P46. So all the papyri, if you look at them in a, in a uh, literature, whatever, have a big, funny-looking P in front of them. They're papyri, P. So there's about 130 of these early, early papyri. This here, and they go in numeral 1 to 130. This is P46. P46 dates to about A.D. 200 and contains mostly Pauline epistles. Okay? So this is one of the earliest, the earliest evidences we have of the Pauline epistles. But what's important, what's important to understand is the papyri. The papyri contain most, contain most, if you take them all 130, most of what we know as the New Testament. But as an example, this is about A.D. 200. And we have the John Ryland collection. This little fragment here, a little fragment, this is P52. P52, probably, and this is based on research, and you think, well, how do they date this? They say, well, it's A.D. so, A.D. so. How do they know? I mean, on none of these is there a date. And we pick up a book now and we look at the date and it says, you know, what's the date? Uh, published 1913, published 2016. None of these 
manuscripts, scraps, have dates on them. So the only way, other than destroying half of them to do carbon-14 testing, there are specialists who do nothing in their own lives, their whole lives are taken up by doing studying of ancient writing, paleography. So you collect all these different manuscripts, and you look at the writing, and you compare writing samples. You do that day in and day out. That's your job. You look at all the different samples, and after a while you get an idea. Okay, this type of cursive happened around 100 AD, and as writing changes over time, this type of writing, AD 200. So after a while, you can kind of date documents just by the handwriting. This is the earliest, the earliest fragment of any New Testament writing, about A.D. 125, with several verses, I think, of John chapter 18. Another collection is the Bodmar collection. And D here, interesting story, a lot of scraps came from this town, Oxyrhynchus. Oxyrhynchus was a town in Egypt, and if you translate it, it means city of the sharp-nosed fish. So if you want a trivia question, you ask somebody, what does oxyrhynchus mean? You tell them, yes, it's the city of the sharp-nosed fish. So in any case, early 1900s, you had some archaeologists there, and they went to the city dump. What happens when you're done with your manuscript, your book, it wears out, your papyrus falls apart, you dump it. So they went to the city dump, Oxyrhynchus, and dug through the city dump and found thousands and thousands of papyri, of manuscripts, and among all those, there were business documents, all kinds of documents, but among those were actual pieces of New Testament scriptures. And most of the papyri we have does come from Egypt. Why? Because the climate preserves things, hot and dry, you put your papyrus in the sand, and it'll stay there forever. So most of our papyri do come from Egypt. Okay, the second, second writing is parchment or vellum, which is basically leather that hasn't been cured. So you have prepared animal skin suitable for writing. A skin, they took off all the hair, the fat, planed everything down, dried it out, treated it, and so you got this very, very fine, thin parchment, or animal skin, that was suitable for writing. It was a very expensive material, but it was a very good writing material. And actually, parchment comes from Pergamum, which is the city up in Asia Minor that John talked about in Revelation. So papyrus started to replace, replace papyrus parchment, parchment, sorry, we'll get there, began to replace papyrus. And so you can look at some documents. So these animal skins were prepared with such skill, such skill, that the thickness of a sheet of, of this parchment is about as thick as a sheet of paper. That is how finely these things were prepared. So, something very interesting here. For most, or all the time of the of the Israelite nations and the nations around them, most things in that time were written on scrolls. You know, you run this scroll out, you write on it, you roll the scroll back up, you have to open it again. Most methods of writing, of transmission of writings, were done with scroll. But what very interesting happened, Christians, almost from the beginning, did not use scrolls. They did not use scrolls. They went to something called a codex, which is about the same thing like our modern books. So Christians kind of were innovators in this in bringing out and popularizing this book. Remember, most things were on scrolls. Very few were on codex. But Christians immediately, and nobody's sure exactly why, but they used books, codexes, to write the scriptures in. So the book became very popular, and for whatever number of reasons, it was used extensively by Christians. But we need to consider as, as transmission of the New Testament. Remember now, we have four Gospels, 
circulating rather early. We have Paul's epistles circulating very early. The rest of the epistles, so were added slowly. And so what, what almost happened is that the four Gospels were put together in one codex. So first you had them circulating individually. Finally, somebody gets the idea, hey, why don't we put these all together in one big book? And so they did, and it's interesting that the order is not always the same for whatever reason that we have now. But you had the four Gospels in a book. You had Paul's epistles in a book. And then slowly the others were added together. And maybe for some reason, trying to put things together, that the book did much better than the scroll. But in any case, I think we can probably thank, thank our early brothers and sisters for the popularity of books. In fact, I don't know, do we use scrolls at all today? Probably not to me. Maybe in some of the synagogues. Oh, understand, again, we have 130 papyri, pieces of papyrus with parts of the New Testament written on them, the first one dating prior to 125 A.D., now, two of the most complete, remember, those 130 are not all complete New Testaments. They have various bits and pieces. But two of the most complete, Old Testament, New Testament, and important codices or books are Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus that have been dated to the mid-4th century. So the Codex Sinaiticus is interesting. This was found a codex, a book, out of parchment, these are both parchments, was found by a German doing work exploring for New Testament scriptures in about 1840. So he was traveling around the Sinai and saying, hey, I'm looking for old parchments and looking for old pieces of papyri. And so he stumbled upon this codex, hundreds of pages that were in a, in a monastery in Mount Sinai way down southern end of the Sinai Peninsula. And the monks there had this stuff laying around, this codex in pieces, pages, and they had no idea, no idea that they were sitting on something from the mid-fourth century. So our explorer, Count Tischendorf, gathered all this together, and it's become one of the most important documents in getting together a New Testament Greek copies. So if you might hear about these off and on, if you have any interest in New Testament research, Codex Vaticanus, as the name implies, says, is housed in the Vatican. I don't know if they'll let you see that. But Codex Sinaiticus is online. You can view the pages. It's all in Greek. If you can read Greek, good. So this is a sample. Obviously, all these parchment pages were rebound, and it's now in book form. And if you look at this, there's four columns, obviously. There are very, very few areas where you can see a stopping. You know, it's like, this is scripto continuo, okay? You read and read and read, and if you don't know what you're reading, you don't know where to stop and start. So you just look at that, and the letters are all put together, and it goes on and on and on. So you need to be a little trained in how to read these, because there are no periods, there's no punctuation, there's no spaces, there's no verses, okay? This is all scripto in one big long line, and you need to be pretty good at reading to understand, if I'm reading this to a congregation, what am I reading? Where do I stop? How do I inflect? Where do I start again? Okay, remember, no punctuation, no verse divisions. Verse divisions came much, much, much later. So this is a picture here of what we have, Codex Sinaiticus. So what's, what we have at this time, 2016, we don't have the originals. And some people say, well, if we don't have the originals, we have no idea. We have no idea what God said to us. And that's what the liberals will say. Look, you guys don't have the originals. Who knows what God said? It's gone. You have copies of copies. Understand that you get even the most hard-headed liberal, and he will admit after a while that what we have now, 
the Greek New Testament that we have as a result of all these finds of papyrus and parchments is really, really, really pretty, pretty close to what the originals would be. So what they're saying is that there is really nothing, nothing that we can see that would be different from what we have to the originals that would affect Christian faith in the least bit. That is how confident they are that with an understanding of oral tradition, an understanding of how the Bible was put together, how it was transmitted, the evidence they have, and these people that spend all their lives studying this, that what we have, the New Testament that we have, is in no great difference from the originals. So the newest, so we have these guys doing this all the time, day and night. There's a Greek New Testament, a kind of an official Greek New Testament that's published every so often that takes into account all the findings, the new papyri, the parchments, all the evidence. And there, there's two kind of official Greek New Testaments, if you're interested. The one is the Nestle Allen, and they're on their 28th volume. So what they have is a Greek New Testament written in Greek, taking all this into account, and with varieties, sometimes there's variations in words at the bottom, they have all kinds of explanation. But anyway, it is kind of the, quote, official New Testament, Greek New Testament. There's also one by the United Bible Society, I think they're on volume five. So if you're into Greek, you can read Greek, you can pick one up you're reading through it, you can envision that you are reading something that is so close to the original, to the autograph, that for all practical purposes, it doesn't matter. As Hillary says, what difference does it make? Okay? What difference? There is really no difference that you and I as Christians need to worry about, that some great element of doctrine was missed. So under God's shepherding, it is a truly amazing book, 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years, has just one author, God. And the bottom line, the whole struggle here between the conservatives and the liberals and the liberal idea, if we can just destroy, destroy your faith, my faith, in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, we can just destroy that. And we have destroyed the faith entirely and made this of no effect. As Paul says, what's the point? There's no resurrection, we're wasting our time. If there's no New Testament, if it's a bunch of fables and made-up things, there's no point. But it's not. The ultimate, the ultimate story is about God's plan to rescue us from the results of the fall. A plan that was conceived in eternity, revealed through the prophets, and carried out by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Any questions or comments? Anything at all? Yes? Uh-oh. Hang on, hang on. This is your big moment. Fifteen seconds. Uh, so now I forget what the word was, but when you were saying the, it was like a book or close to a book, how is it different than what we see today? That, Say that louder again. Um, I forget the term. Con codex, yes. A, the, the difference between a codex and a book. There really isn't one. Is it was how they were bound? It was just or? a manufacturing. I mean, a codex is basically a book. They just they didn't call it book back then. It was a codex. But there's no difference. I mean, you have a book, it's a codex. Okay? There's really no difference between the two. Is that? No? Yes? More details? Do you have any more details? No, it, it was, if, if you look, you pick up your book and you look at the spine, you know, they have all those, it's not like all the pages are in one spine, it's like there's little sections. What's that? Yeah, okay, they call them choirs. Yeah, okay, yeah, is that? 
So anyway, they took like, instead of putting 200 pages, okay, I've got a stack of 200 pages. That's my Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to fold it together, and that's my book. No, it's, it's like a book now. You take, instead of 200 pages, you take like 10, fold them in half, 10 more, 10 more, 10 more, then you sew them down the spine, and then you put the back of the book. Okay? So it's, it's kind of, they were kind of made except not using paper, obviously, papyrus and, and parchment. It's the same, about the same thing. Microphone. You want to be recorded, right? Don't you? Yes, you can be recorded. No, over here. All right, for the record. The codices were, one of the differences between that and our book today is all the words, letters right, were written yeah. together, no spaces yeah, okay. too, right? Yeah, Ron's right. If you want to be tell, yes. We obviously have punctuation, we have verses, we have paragraphs, we have all that stuff, which obviously, as you saw on the codex, did not have. So verse, verses came in about 1500 AD, okay? So you were running around without verses for about 1500 years. Over here. My question, you had, you had mentioned uh, some early churches. There were different early churches. But it's, is that the liberal idea of trying to undermine Christianity is saying, you know, you didn't have just one Christian church. You had like 30 different, like we would have Roman Catholics and whatever. You know, all my question actually is a second question. About it, when did Roman Catholic church... Oh, when did it... Probably you could date the beginning to Emperor Constantine, which was around 315 A.D., when Emperor Constantine took power over Rome, he, there's a story that he conquered Rome. Because he, he was a, a Roman general, and he became emperor. But he had to conquer Rome, the capital city. So he said that he had a vision, that an angel appeared. He had a vision of a cross. And that cross, the voice said, you are going to conquer under the sign of the cross. So when he became emperor, he won. And he said, you know what? Christianity will now be the official religion because I saw the angel and the cross and I was able to conquer Rome under the cross. So he became, quote, a believer. Now, whether he was, you know, a real believer or not, there's arguments, okay? But he said that I am a believer now in Jesus Christ and therefore Christianity will be the official religion. So that's when the Roman Catholic Church started. No, 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 no. This is this is like 300 years after Paul. Yeah, yeah. Paul was around 50, 60 A.D., and this Roman Catholic stuff started like three, 320, 30 A.D. So almost 300 years after Paul, this all started. First of all, thank the Lord and you. That was really interesting. Um, um, one thing that I thought was very interesting was about the oral tradition, um, because I hadn't heard that before, and it makes so much sense. And I was sort of wondering, is, it, is that why, like, um, in the Jewish religion, like, the, when the boy becomes a man and he does a bar mitzvah, and he'll recite a large part of the Bible? So is that, like, that's their oral tradition, and that's sort of carrying on? I, I just was, I don't know if there's a link there, but... I thought that was very interesting. Have you had any of your grandchildren do that? Hmm? No, no, I mean, did you, have you had any of the grandkids have bar mitzvah or anything? No, I'm not. Okay, no, okay, I just said. They typically read from the Torah. I don't know how much of it. that I've seen I had a different question, and that was, uh, some would say that uh, Matthew and Mark had a common document that they both referred to, I f forget what it's called in the lingo, but any, any comments on that? So you, you get into the idea of, of which was the first gospel, and there's been arguments about that forever. 
and currently the idea is probably, it's called Mark and Priority, where Mark was probably the first gospel, and maybe even Matthew and Luke copied some from Mark, because you can find similar material in, in the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so they're trying to say, well, did somebody take some? But there's also where the idea that there was a pre I mean, Luke talks about different sources. You know, I, I, in chapter one, I looked at all the different... That there was a document that's hypothesized, nobody's ever found it, but they call it Q, a Q document, German for quella or source. So there's some thinking that maybe before even the four Gospels were done, that there were some kind of written notes, maybe, of what Jesus did and said, and that this document, hypothetically called Q, was then used by some of the, the writers of the Gospels. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I mean, there is no, you can't go to the dictionary and find the Q document. But just, again, there's lots of people, they spend their whole lives trying to figure out how this writing, when it was done, how it was done. And they postulate that maybe there was an earlier document, not a gospel, but maybe just a book of notes that one of the apostles kept or whatever, and then that was used by Matthew or Luke in, in writing part of their gospel, which, I mean, it wouldn't make a difference. It wouldn't make a difference, I would agree with you. you. You mentioned, I think it was David Brown as being one of the critics of the... Christian oh, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code guy? I, I, I don't... Yeah. Okay. Is there... Who were the, uh, the Christians that are the defenders uh, against this? The, who were who the writers that... Oh, you, you oh currently? Currently, yes. Okay, you've, you've got, some, got some good guys on the right. There's Daryl Bach from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. You've got Craig Evans. I don't know where he's from. He's pretty good. There's also... Uh, the names escape me. There's a Kruger, a guy named Kruger that's pretty good. Keener. And there's some very good conservative scholars that, that defend against this. So, yeah, it's not a one-sided deal where the left is. But the problem is, in our country, in our culture, it only flies, it only sells newspapers if it's something wild and radical. So if you're defending orthodoxy, the orthodox Bible, that doesn't make news. But if you come out with a claim that you have an ancient piece of papyrus that says Jesus was married, that makes all the news. So you've got, but there is, you know, feedback against that, but it doesn't make the paper. Just recently, just... A lady from a New Testament scholar, one of the universities out east, she got a hold of this piece of papyrus, okay, a very small piece, about like that, a piece of papyrus, and on that, it said in so many words, it talked about the wife of Jesus. Okay, so it looked like, you know, this little piece of papyrus we were showing here? It was a piece of papyrus with ancient writing, and it talked about the wife of Jesus. So the Smithsonian and... You know, all these groups made a big deal. National Geographic, whoa, look at this. Ancient piece of papyrus says, talks about Jesus' wife. Wow, we have a new gospel again. You know, that makes the great news. So it spread all apart. Wow, scholar says Jesus had a wife. Big news, okay? So that was like four years ago. So just last month, you get a big article in the Atlantic magazine. You get articles by the conservative scholars and it all turns out that after all the testing is done, it's a forgery, okay? So we've got all this time and money into it, and in the end it turns out it was a forgery, and the lady scholar, the PhD scholar, admits, yeah, yeah, I was probably, in so many words, hoodwinked. But the, the only reason, you know, this goes forward so fast, it's something new. Jesus had a wife. Is it a forgery? I don't care. Let's publish it. You know, who cares? Jesus had a wife. Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it a forgery? We don't have time to test it. Publish it. You know, and then after the rebuttal comes, years later, does that make the headlines? Did you read a headline? Papyrus said Jesus had a wife. Was a forgery? Anybody? No. You know, it's buried. Wouldn't a uh, uh, forgery also be the dead, uh, dead Sea Scrolls? They can't see. No. Now that's. I'm asking about Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, no, that, there's no indication. Hmm? Dead Sea Scrolls would be forgery too? No. No? 
No, there's no indication that any of the document. Constantly coming up, new ones and new ones. But as, as you do more and more research and people look more and more every year, there's going to be some finds that are authentic. I mean, you can get a forgery and you can prove it's a forgery, but you can also find things that are authentic, you know. But just the passage of time, you know, you may find more things. So just because something is found, what you have to look at if you have an artifact found, you need to know its provenance, okay? So an archaeologist, if he finds something, whatever, you know, a piece of papyrus from 100 A.D., so you need a chain of evidence. If that archaeologist can say, look, this was found buried in the desert by me on this date, and, it, and nobody sold it to me, I found it in its original condition, and you have a chain of custody, and that shows that this was not a forgery, nobody else had control of it, but if all of a sudden you find something on the market like this that the scholar had here that said Jesus had a wife, if you don't know where it came from, it could be anything. So archaeologists are very keen on showing, okay, where was it found, how was it found, and give me a chain of custody from when it was found to when it's here, and that'll help us show if it's really authentic or if it's a forgery. And that's a complicated business, but... I'm sorry. This is not related exactly to the compilation of the Bible, but I came across a lecture from Amy or Ewing from RZIM recently that was incredible. Apparently, within the last 10 years, a study has been made about the most popular names of um, uh, kids or babies within the, in the first century, for example. In Israel, they compared the names in Israel versus a few kilometers away, like in Egypt. And the Jewish population named their boys completely differently. In Egypt, it may have been Abraham that was the most popular. I don't remember exactly. But in Israel, it was Simon. Simon, John, James, those were the real popular names. And those are exactly the names you find in the Bible. Now, each time a name was extremely popular, the Bible qualifies it. For example, you have Simon Peter or you have Simon the Tenor because you would have had a lot of different Simons to differentiate um, in between. When the name is not popular, it doesn't mention it. And that is evidence that it's eyewitnesses or people who lived there that knew what they were doing. Uh, in the same vein, all the geographical details or name of towns, extremely small towns, are right on. When you compare what the Bible has versus other Gospels, like for example, the Gospel of Philip has only two towns mentioned. One was Jerusalem and the other one I don't remember. But the name of Jesus of Nazareth, they are so wrong that Nazareth is considered the middle name of Jesus. They don't even know that it's a town. No, yeah, uh, so yeah. you can see the difference. Oh yeah, I mean, some of, you know, there was a lot of extraneous writings during this, during this time. Like I said, you had to pull out the, the 27 books and recognize them, but there were hundreds and hundreds of other writings, and you know, there's Gospel of Judas, of Peter, of all these other things, but you know, you obviously going through them, just by reading them, you could find out, hey, most of this stuff is just made up fake, because they had such wild claims in them that all kinds of stuff in there, if you're really interested, but yeah, there's a big difference between what men write and what God inspires, so.